0: I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm speaking with Ori Kwan, co-founder at Orca, a human-friendly DeFi protocol on Solana. For Orca, human-friendly isn't an empty catch line. In a landscape of clunky Web3 applications, Orca's UX and UI really stand out. And this is by no means a coincidence. Ori is first and foremost a designer, and it's rare for Web3 projects to be founded by people who care about design, by people who actually incorporate usability into their vision from day one. Bad UX is one of the main things holding Web3 back. And according to Ori, crypto's history of bad UX isn't just because of blockchain software constraints. It's also because of the underrepresentation of designers' voices. I'm a big believer that projects ship their org charts. And if you don't elevate designers and product folks, you won't get products that are well-designed. An important takeaway is that design means more than slick user-facing animations. Ori and her co-founder bring the same intentionality to their developer-facing products too. Unlike many developer tools on blockchain, Orca's SDKs and documentation are as thoughtfully designed as their consumer-facing products, but designed with developers in mind. Ori helps us understand how she thinks about building Web3 products that are desirable, feasible, and viable. A couple of our conversation highlights include the relationship between UX and UI, and how the best technology doesn't always win when it comes to user onboarding. Let's get into it. Ori, welcome to Validated.
1: Austin, so good to be here.
0: Yeah, this is going to be a great conversation. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to the intersection of crypto and design. But first, run us through your background a bit and how you got into crypto.
1: Of course. So most of you may know me as the co-founder of Orca, the leading crypto marketplace on Solana. But... Before that, I actually had a background that was really nothing to do with crypto at all. So I'd say my original roots come down to always being some blend of technology and art and design. So I started out studying computer science at Stanford, where I specialize in human-computer interaction. And I kind of laugh thinking back to like high school when I wrote my uh, comment app essay on how I wanted to do something at the intersection of technology and design. So that really was something that just kind of called to me. After that, I worked in ed tech at Coursera. It was my first job, working as a software engineer, built out some of their learning interface. Uh, then, when I was actually working at a startup in New York, is when I became more and more into design, just wanting to get more and more to the root of making sure we were solving the right problems for the right people. And that's the journey that actually took me to Tokyo, where I was working at IDEO, a pretty well-known design firm there, for a couple of years before I had a kind of chance encounter actually with my co-founder Utaro who was uh, actually already really deep in crypto. He's very passionate and just very brilliant when it comes to all things math, economics, cryptography, and of course, the intersection of all those things is crypto. And so our meeting really became, what can we do with that skill set of a deep understanding of crypto? Yutara was actually at the Ethereum Foundation at the time, and uh, someone who really cares about building really intuitive experiences on top of these more advanced and sometimes inaccessible technologies. So I'd say that's the story of Orca.
0: Yeah, so I think one of the pieces I want to like tease out here is like you as someone who's been in the world of design, working at IDEO, You look at crypto, at that time especially, it was the most anti-design industry you could possibly look at working in. You talk to folks who have been building in crypto, especially folks who were early on Ethereum, and UX and design in crypto, it always felt like not even an afterthought, like it wasn't even something on the table all of the conversations were focused on technology, use cases, like how do we build the most impressive technology and just like the best technology is going to win out and we don't really have to think about anything on the other side. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious what won you over to the idea that like you could build something on blockchain that was going to be designed forward and that that would be both interesting to you and interesting to the market.
1: I would say it was never even a question of having to be won over. If any product is going to be relevant to people, it needs to be designed for a particular use case and for people's needs. And so when it came to what can we do with crypto, I was actually just shocked that this wasn't already the mindset. I was frankly just appalled when I started playing around with some of the the existing applications at the time and finding that. I really did feel like, and I think I can especially feel this because I am an engineer by background, they took the underlying data models and basically like splashed them onto the page in the closest uh, possible approximation of those data models, which often is essentially like a table. Um, And so going from there to actually making something useful obviously needed a design process in between.
0: So, The difference between when I started using technology on a day-to-day basis, which, you know, really for me, like, I was born in 1990, so it's probably somewhere around 2002, 2004 is, like, where I start actually, like, you know, building a gaming computer and starting experiencing, interacting, and living online, and the design difference between, like, a BBS message board then and even Discord now, not that Discord's the world's best design, but the, the expectations from a use and design perspective are so much higher. And you look at sort of the design of modern products, and they feel like they're built for humans in a way that they maybe weren't in the earlier days of technology. What do you think it is about crypto that sort of kept that back? An experience I have had onboarding friends to crypto, especially before Solana, is they look at these things and they go, why are all these designs totally wild? It feels like it's got its own language that is completely separate from the rest of the software world. Would you agree with that?
1: I would agree. And I would say that that stems to a large degree from the incredibly challenging software constraints that crypto presents. Hmm. Crypto has always sought to solve particular problems. And I think these are problems that many of the listeners of this podcast are probably already familiar with. But just to recap in case... We're talking about things like having this essentially eternal and fully globally accessible data persistence, right? So being able to always count on data being there, being available and being verifiable. Um, decentralization as an ethos is a big part of crypto, but it also comes with, you know, these particular advantages of transparency, of accessibility, of persistence. But, those come with trade-offs, right? And I think that's something that not everyone understands is that it is incredibly difficult to to build on top of a blockchain because it offers these advantages. It's not necessarily as as fast or at least as instant um, as people may expect when they're coming from the world of Web2, right? And so I think it's a little bit challenging because user experience as we understand it for digital products is often actually predicated on speed right things need to feel like they're almost instantly reactive these days if you're blessed to be in a country that has high speed internet access but crypto i think has long been stuck more in this technology development phase where we're almost like doing research on the the base layer and simultaneously yeah. trying to develop these products that are competing with web2 products at the same time and that that's tough
0: <laughs> yeah it's super tough and I think the the whole idea of like oh crypto is speed running x or y or z I think you really see that when you're looking at people trying to as you're saying build the base layer and build the user layer at the same time and that's an incredibly difficult thing to do you know you you mentioned something before I kind of want to dig into a bit which is that the technology sometimes dictates the design and the interface decisions. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and and how some of the paradigms of the technology impacted the early designs of crypto?
1: Yeah. In many cases, I would say design is really more of a science than an art. There's some amount Hmm. of art to it, but especially user experience is really a science. It's about understanding what users need, what users want, what users are already familiar with, and also making smart business trade-offs when it comes to putting those things together into a workable product. But technology is a completely different science, right? And so when you're thinking about how to optimize, let's say, for a TPS, right, you may not really be thinking about this entirely different science that requires a different set of specialties and Early on, there just weren't many designers in crypto, like not many UX designers, especially. I think that's something that people get really confused about is the difference between UX or UI. And it always, as a designer, triggers me a little bit to hear them like yeah. lump together into UI, UX. People love to say, the UI, UX of XYZ is so good. And I'm like, OK, which one, though? Um, <laughs> because when it's left to engineers to do design, basically, they do the minimal UI design, right, to put things on on paper. And so that leads to things like like I mentioned earlier just like endless tables. Like so many defi products are just tables and that's because You know, really what it is, at the end of the day, it's a database. Crypto itself, like a blockchain, is essentially a database. And so if you take all of this information and just lay it out in a table, they're like, okay, great, people can access the data, it works. But that's not necessarily, again, the most familiar or intuitive way that people access data, especially now in this world of Web2 products that have evolved to do so much of the work for you.
0: Yeah, I want to get into sort of how you and Orca have rethought some of the ideas of how you display data, especially in the context of DeFi. But just to sort of take a step back a second, how do you think about the interplay between UI and UX from a designer perspective?
1: UX should definitely come first. So UX involves all the things that relate to again, what is it that people really need? What is it that people really want? And what is the value that people get out of this product? And so when I start designing a product, I always start from there. Like, what is the ultimate value that we want to deliver from people? And then how does this product deliver that value? And so even before, usually I'm like wireframing or drawing any type of button or table or card or anything, I'm thinking about what are the things that people need to do with this product, right? Um, In the example for Orca, people need to be able to buy and sell cryptocurrency, right? Uh, so we we can talk about those types of things. We can talk about how they want to be able to buy and sell cryptocurrency quickly and to instantly know whether the trade succeeded or failed and to know what to do in the case of retrying. And all of those things, once we've identified what those things are they need to do, have many different translations into a UI. And it's almost as if, you know, there there are three different ways to do the same thing. Like You could pour your coffee into a mug. You could pour it into a tumbler. You could pour it into a glass. And each of those things may deliver the coffee to your mouth, but they'll do it in a different way. And depending on the particular context that that person is in, the drinking vessel of choice may be different, right?
0: Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And you know, I kind of want to dig into this, this experience of what good UX means in the context of something like Orca. Because one of the, the fascinating things that you're trying to do is that there's sort of three different categories or product offerings that Orca has. There's sort of the main thing people might be familiar with Orca, which is sort of like a very crypto curious, very friendly interface. You have a pro interface, but then there's also a huge part of Orca that's actually a developer facing SDK that gets integrated into other types of applications built on on Solana. How do you kind of think about almost the the UX objectives for those three different types of products?
1: Totally. Let's dive into that. So first of all is the the Orca.so interface that many folks I think know and love and think of as Orca. And as you mentioned, that one historically has been much more about helping folks who are, we sometimes we call them like crypto curious, right? Like a little bit, uh, maybe they own a few NFTs, they trade here and there, but don't know, you know, they they can't explain to you all the details of how a blockchain works. And and they shouldn't have to, right? Like, I think in order for these products to be more accessible, we can't expect everyone to come on and give you a sermon about ZKs or anything, you know? Like, people should be able to just come on, connect their wallet, and make a trade. And everything around Orca and also uh, the new Orca that we're going to be launching in mid-April uh, is geared around that, right? And sometimes I laugh actually that people say still say that Orca's UX is like or UI UX, as they may say, is incredible because it's really just something that like I cobbled together in a few months, like you know, <laughs> with a few inter- user interviews early on. I think it could be so much better. Uh, but to answer the the rest of your question, the the needs are inc- incredibly different when you're talking to say a pro trader, right? Like what they really want to see is a detailed candlestick chart so they can do technical analysis, potentially. Or they're wearing their market maker hat and they want to be looking into the liquidity ratios and different pools. And so Orca naturally has these three products, right? Like sort of this trading product, this liquidity product, and also this SDK, which builders can use to tap into the trading and the liquidity. Um, And when it comes to builders, like the considerations are different yet again, right? So builders... Usually they have some other objective that they want to achieve, and plugging into Orca basically allows them to take care of some of the stuff that they don't necessarily feel like they personally need to like put attention into, um, so they can, for example, hook up their Web3 game to the blockchain without needing to know too much about the details of a blockchain and having the right uh, functions that they're looking for, even the, the right languages. Right? We recently um, Orca was recently integrated into the Unity SDK for Solana, and so that opens up a whole new audience. I think as easy as possible and um, as frictionless as possible and as good of customer support as possible are all part of the overall UX for SDK, and that has really no UI element at all, right?
0: Right. Yeah, you know, uh, you mentioned the kind of user interviews as a piece that was important in that initial like discovery phase for the Orca.so interface design there. I always find user interviews fascinating because I've been at so many companies that have attempted to do them and never managed to actually pull any real product insights out of it, which I'm sure is a problem in the process and not obviously the concept of user interviews. But how do you conduct those well to inform some of your product and design decisions without sort of running into the sort of the small sample bias problem? Like, what are you looking for when you do a user interview?
1: It really surprises me that you say that because I can't imagine them not being useful. I think if there is something too specific that you're you're looking for, you're already doing it wrong because you need to come in with a very open mind, right? I think I generally come in with a loose hypothesis. And let's just give an example. Maybe my hypothesis is that users want to see a very detailed price chart, right? And... So for example, they want to have a lot of different functions on this price chart. They want to be able to draw lines, as we may say, and do technical analysis. Um, I could come in with that hypothesis and for a particular product and do some interviews and show people the price chart. And usually what I'll try to do when I do these interviews is actually say very little. I'd like to do what I call a mental model test in the beginning, where I just show them the interface and see how they react. Because... I think a big mistake that a lot of folks who don't have a lot of experience running interviews make is to over-explain. Uh, but the reality is when these users come and actually use the product, I'm not going to be standing there looking over their shoulder being like, oh, but you know, don't <laughs> press that button, press this button. <laughs> um, and I just said, see what, how they react. And I think if... That that is the right type of chart for the target user, and I've correctly identified the target user for the interview. They'll naturally be like, "Oh yeah, like I'm so used to this. I like use these trading view charts all the time. I'm just gonna blah, blah blah, and then it would be really great if you added this." But then if I show it to someone who has like actually very little experience with trading, and that's not what they're looking for, they're gonna be like, "Oh my god, I have no idea how to read this. Like, um, I don't really know what to do with that." Right. And so I think a lot of it is not like it's not about t- asking people to tell you what to design. It's about seeing how people react to a potential design or asking probing questions to understand their background and then cobble it together into insights that then later inform the design.
0: It's interesting because I think at this point in the technology cycle, everyone has an opinion on Twitter struggles, particularly under Jack Dorsey. And I think one of the things that you often hear is that Twitter listened to its users too much, which is such a counterintuitive piece of feedback, right? We usually think of Companies listening to their customers is a good thing. So when it comes to Orca, how do you balance the desire to better serve your existing community while also thinking about what you need to do from a design and product point of view in order to reach new users?
1: You need to have a strong product point of view. And often design gets lost in that, I think, especially in crypto, because nobody with a really design background or design focus is at the head of the table. And I think that's where we've been somewhat lucky, <laughs> maybe I should say, with Orca in that uh, you, Taro, and I as co-founders, I think naturally bring this very yin-yang focus on design and technology and kind of wear those those hats that we separately bring to the table, but with equal weight. Yeah. In contrast, a lot of protocols, everyone who's at the head of the table wears either usually a technology hat, maybe sometimes a business hat, but really not that design hat. And so when we think about what products to build, it's a mix between, okay, what do we understand about the market and what types of products have product market fit, um, what types of products are feasible, but then also which products have that unique desirability from the, the user perspective.
0: Yeah, I think like from the outside, it's a very ambitious task that you have decided to take on with Orca, with supporting these sort of three different tiers of products and communities it feels you know looking across the crypto landscape there's very few protocols that have chosen to do something sort of as as diverse You, you usually see this idea of like we're going to expand into a new product category not that we're going to create a new interface paradigm whether that's graphical interface or api interface to access what is fundamentally that same that same core product I think there's a lot that people can learn from that experience of saying, we don't necessarily need to rebuild the product. We need to think about the ways people can interact with it that suit whatever they're trying to do better. It's a really interesting insight there.
1: It's in some ways unique and in some ways not. A lot of people think about building an AMM, right? I think that we're we're far from the only AMM on Solana. But I do think we take a pretty unique perspective when it comes to framing what an AMM can do. I think what we've learned from having our concentrated liquidity AMM live for over a year is that the framing of a concentrated liquidity AMM is one that's unfamiliar and actually alienating to a lot of the target audience. Hmm. The types of folks who are best suited to use a concentrated liquidity AMM is very different from the types of folks who use a more typical uh, constant product amm and i know that not everyone listening to this podcast knows the details so (laughs) a typical amm can provide liquidity a lot more passively because everybody who provides liquidity to the pool is essentially sharing in the same types of returns given uh, that they're providing essentially across the entire price range but on a concentrated liquidity amm you have to provide a specific price range. And so folks who are essentially able to better understand market movements better will be able to provide liquidity a lot more effectively. Uh, But those types of folks are generally order book users. Uh, They may use order books on centralized exchanges or even on on on-chain order books. But the way they think about uh, trading is usually coached in many, many years of experience doing trading on these other interfaces, which do feature things like candlestick charts and uh, limit orders, et cetera. And the reality is that a concentrated liquidity AMM is more like an order book than it is like a constant product AMM, despite the name, and can actually power that type of interface, which is actually incredibly game-changing, if you ask me. I think it's something that's also pretty uniquely doable on Solana. With this type of experience, like because it can provide such a smooth and like high TPS, and you know Orca itself has actually uh, done very very well even in times of um, network congestion and and downtime. And so to be able to provide that type of experience is something that's really really new for DeFi, and that again I think is just going to be pretty groundbreaking and exciting.
0: How do you think Orca accomplishes that? Like what's what's that interface you've built between? The way the protocol works, the way you interact with the underlying Solana blockchain and the way that that's displayed to users, that consistently provides, you know, a a satisfactory user experience, even during periods of congestion. Like what's going on under the hood that makes that possible?
1: What's going on under the hood is... Well, first of all, it's a really solid smart contract. (laughs) I always, to be honest, I laugh a little bit when people are like, oh, but what happens if XYZ Ethereum protocol just bridges over to Solana and then competes with you guys? I'm like, that's just not how it works, right? Like, it's a completely different programming environment, a completely different virtual machine and a different language, right? Like, And even if it were possible to just bridge over some EVM AMM (laughs) to Solana, I just find it very difficult to believe that it's going to work as elegantly because Solana has these different concepts that it's built around, right? Like account access and having to specify specific accounts that make it more performant, right? And so I think what what we have at the core is an extremely solid smart contract that to today, I'm, I'm knocking on wood here, has never been exploited and has reliably provided uh, this, this trading experience for over a year on mainnet. Uh, But on top of that, uh, we have an extra layer, right, of going the extra mile to translate that into these many different forms that you mentioned, right, into a trading interface, into a liquidity provision interface, and into an SDK that serve more specific use cases and that are constantly evolving as well. Because (laughs) as we all know, crypto evolves at the state of light. And so just like sitting on the interface that was shipped out the first time is unlikely to remain competitive. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about like developer experience, which is sort of a subset of that sort of user experience category. How do you think about developing UX for something that is specifically developer facing? I feel like most of the time, people put out an SDK, they put out some documentation, and they sort of say, well, now developers can use it. But it's hardly ever what it takes to actually get adoption of an SDK. What has been Orca's sort of success path into getting integrated with all these other types of applications and games.
1: It's a strong point of view at the end of the day. And this Mm. is coming back to what you were saying earlier about Twitter, right? Listening too much to your audience is essentially the same as design by committee, right? If 12 different people come to you and ask for 12 different things and you just put them all into the SDK, you'll get something that could theoretically serve all these different use cases, but is unlikely to really fit together into a holistic whole and unlikely to necessarily translate to a wider variety of use cases as well. And so this is something where I can take exactly zero credit as never having written a line of our SDK, but can give a ton of credit to the architects of the SDK on the Orca team, who do have a ton of experience writing SDKs from being engineers for 10 plus years in the Web2 world. And I think this is like a pretty unique advantage in some ways with crypto. I think... Crypto never fails to blow me out of the water with how devs just get younger and younger and younger. But, you know, a lot of the devs on the Orca team are actually from these long Web2 engineering backgrounds. And I think that serves Orca very well uh, because this strong point of view is then tempered by the ability to go out and actually speak directly with users that we get with crypto, take that feedback and then integrate it into the holistic vision as opposed to taking feedback piecemeal, like you say.
0: Yeah, there's always been this weird interplay where it seems like the best built products for developers have a lot of empathy in the, the the quality in which they're built. But at the same time, most engineers building the products want you to do it one very specific way. And you sort of end up with this fractured system where you have either a product that is very intentional about the way you have to build it but is not very flexible or you end up with like the Microsoft problem where there's 45 ways to do the exact same thing there's no right way and people can really get almost lost in choice so you know when when you've been working with some of these engineers that are are building the SDK um how have, as someone who's who's who has not built SDKs before like how do you help them figure out what the right balance is to strike
1: this is actually not something that I personally need to help them with in any, because okay. I think, you know, a good developer knows this already. But I think as a UX designer and engineer, what I can say is that developer experience is a lot less different from user experience than people may think. It's about trying to present tools or interfaces or products, as you may say, that people already know how to use without an instruction manual. You mm-hmm. failed if you present an interface or an SDK that requires a human to explain it. In code, it might be about using function names that these developers can intuitively understand the purpose of, or even very clear variable names. And so if you're not a developer, I think what I can give you as a very simple example is uh, let's say you are given this like toolkit, right? This toolkit has like a hammer and a wrench and I don't know. I'm I'm not actually like a person who uses hammers and wrenches, but you know you know how these things like you, you intuitively know that like a hammer hammers nails right, and like a wrench is used uh, for I don't know these turning what are they things. called turning things turning things right like these are familiar concepts. And similarly, if you give like a toolkit of code to a developer and they they see a function that says that the name of the function is turn. Uh, And it's a game, they'll probably know that it's used to turn something, but what is it used to turn, right? And so if maybe Mm -hmm. if you have a function that's called turn character, they'll know that it's turning the the character itself. Or if they have a function that's called like turn wheel, then you'll know that it's turning the wheel, right? And so you just want to be as clear and as specific as possible in the design of the functions themselves, in their placement, with regard to one another and with the rest of the code for developers to be able to intuitively understand how to use them. And when supplementary information is needed, having that, those in the comments, like directly there, or even having really, really good documentation that's like kind of built into the code in the form of, let's say like function headers, et cetera, can all be super, super helpful for DX. So there's the idea,
0: which I'd call a myth, really, that at the end of the day, the best technology wins. I hear this a lot when people talk about Solana. Mm -hmm. People draw this straight arrow line between Solana's the world's fastest blockchain. Therefore, it means Solana is going to be able to serve the world's information. Therefore, Mm Solana is going to be the only blockchain. And that sort of like arrow projection, you know, Technology never really moves in an arrow projection system anyway. Mm-hmm. It always moves and fits and starts and jumps yeah. and, you know, it, it bops around a lot between different types of things. And, you know, if you look at straight line arrow projection from AI, we wouldn't have had this, like, emergence of chat GPT. It would have been, mm-hmm. you know, a much more slow, gradual ramp up over the last five years. So how do you sort of think about the competitive advantage of that kind of experience and like what you need to do to actually take something that's like the laboratory technology right the the capability of solana to have incredibly fast finality and very fast transactions per second or the the technological underpinnings of a concentrated liquidity market maker and then actually turn that into something that has a chance of actually winning out in a marketplace of ideas
1: I love that term marketplace of ideas because I think that's really what it is. Like people are getting hit by so much information nowadays. And if that information is not relevant to them, they have no choice but to filter it out because uh, brains just can't handle that much. And so uh, right now what we have is this this world of so many competing chains, right? You, you have uh, the so-called Ethereum killers, not really uh, an idea that I believe in. You have like the whole EVM ecosystem, and in some ways, they're all kind of trying to do the same thing, right? Be this decentralized technology layer. But those details just don't matter to the average person. I think yeah. BD, marketing, and design are all incredibly underrated when it comes to like, this, this battle of the blockchains. Um, and they're, they're very related, actually. Like BD and marketing is very interrelated with branding, which is a part of design as well. And so when I think about which chain is ultimately going to get the majority market share, I think it's which chain is actually going to be able to provide utility to users that they actually believe in long term and actually will actually just use on a daily basis. I think we're still very far away from that. And right now we actually are, for the most part, still in like a largely speculative stage, right? People are speculating on the potential future value of these technologies. And As much as I think like degen speculation may not be something that I'm like personally excited about or a lot of the industry is personally excited about, it does have value, right? Like speculation is actually what allows ventures to be funded. So I think it's not entirely bad, but... What these chains also need to focus on Solana, but also all the other chains that are competing is building these like real use cases, because long term, that's what's ultimately going to drive demand, drive volume, and making sure that these experiences are things that people actually know how to use. (laughs) Because if you look at a lot of the products right now, like people can't even are just too scared to even save a seed phrase, you know, if they're if they're not really looking to use crypto on a daily basis, all the setup is already enough to scare someone off.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting when you think about it that way. So, I kind of want to go back to the bull market because I think the rise of the bull market was a really interesting time period. It was when everyone started talking about, oh, crypto is going mainstream. We have to really focus on user adoption. And if you look at the data of what actually happened between, let's call it like, you know, early 2020 and, you know, early 2022. It feels like we didn't actually do that much onboarding. And the products that were actually developed and the idea of what these things could be, you know, apart from a few examples of something like Orca, it was still very theoretical. And the actual usage of these things and the actual experience of people integrating this into their lives wasn't wasn't backed up. Would you agree with that? Or did you actually see more real adoption that you would you would call almost like Web2 grade onboarding?
1: There was very little onboarding at all. I'll I'll come out and say that the wallet experience is still the experience that I'm the most disappointed in across all of DeFi. It is so hard to use. And none of these wallets that serve a large number of users really do what's necessary to handhold people through the process. But at the same time, I almost don't feel like there was a big need for that at the time because there's only so much you could do in DeFi. At the end of the day, mm. if there aren't too many things that average users would actually do, and you know, especially users who aren't interested in speculating on tokens, and there's just no need for them to set up these things. There's no need to onboard someone who's not actually going to use any of the functionality that is available once you have a wallet. And so that's where I think the bigger issue lies is finding that product market fit. And I think it, it, it pays to be patient here It does take a long time for technology to sometimes mature to the point where it can become relevant to people. I 100% believe that that will happen for crypto and for blockchains. But often being early or too early is actually the same thing as just building the wrong product. Even Orca wasn't really focused on onboarding at the time because there was so much development to be done on just the core uh, concentrated liquidity, AMM, and making sure that the infrastructure is in pace for these eventual use cases. And even now, during the bear market, I think it's a perfect time to be focusing on getting that technology truly ready for these like more everyday person-relevant applications, so to speak.
0: So what do you think it would actually take for crypto user onboarding to move past the meme stage and move into the reality?
1: Part of it is just blockchain stability. Like it or not, <laughs> as much as, as an engineer, it's easy to understand how... A small bug can lead to like a big outage. Outages really scare people away, right? The idea that they wouldn't have access to their money and potentially a large amount of money when they're self-custodying is very, very, very scary. I think we need to have a lot of empathy for that. And so part of it is just proving that the technology not only works, but works reliably over a very, very, very long period of time you know that I love Solana and the the, the journey getting here has been like incredible and all these highs and lows but I think we need at least I don't know a year where Solana doesn't go down at all right yeah. and and I think once that happens and once people actually have that confidence then more and more people will feel confident building out these applications that require a lot of confidence in the continual uptime of a blockchain and you know putting in more liquidity and all the, the great network effects that come along with that.
0: So if we go back to our example of Twitter, in the early days, Twitter had a lot of problems in terms of stability and its underlying technology. But those problems didn't necessarily choke user onboarding. People still downloaded the app and started to use it to say what they were eating for breakfast or they were taking a walk. What about blockchain onboarding feels different from the first stages of Twitter?
1: It's money. Money is, like it or not, what people need to survive. People putting a significant amount of their life savings into crypto and then having a blockchain go down and not having access to their money, potentially when they need it most, right? Because... A lot of the time, when people can't actually access their funds, are the times when things are extremely volatile. When people are panicking and like selling X, Y, or Z token to try to get out, and then they can't do that because the the network's too congested, or there's downtime, or the protocol itself isn't coded well. You can see how one experience like that, and that just strikes fear into someone's heart for for like ages after that. And these things have network effects too, right? Like if yeah. it happens to one person, um, they'll tell all their friends about it, and so I think this is. Where the, the difference between something like Twitter, where you know if if it goes down for a little bit, maybe it's a little bit inconvenient, but hopefully nobody's like losing their life savings, and a blockchain going down and the price of the assets mm-hmm. that they're holding moving dramatically during that time, um, it's just night and day.
0: Yeah. So, what do you think that folks who are building protocols should be thinking of from a UX perspective or a developer experience perspective that they're not today? When you look around the landscape of applications, like what is some of the advice you have to founders or to folks who are trying to improve the, either the design or the experience of something?
1: Trustworthiness is sexy in crypto. <laughs> it's uh, not something that people generally think of as sexy, but trustworthiness yeah. is just so necessary for a crypto protocol. And I say I pick the word trust in particular, because I think we like to talk a lot about trustless in blockchains, but when it comes to users' trust, once it's gone, it's really hard to win back. Mm. And so that's actually a huge focus of um, what what Orca, the new Orca, is actually all about. Because frankly, like this interface, that's been it's gotten a little crusty from my perspective, from a you like from a UX perspective, it's also gotten a little crusty from a technology perspective. And that's something that we saw with the latest volatility with things like Bonk is that it's just really hard to get a trade through these days when the network is volatile. And a lot of that just has yeah. to do with the underlying uh, way that things are coded. And so the the new version of Orca is all about things just working. The, the theme for, for the new Orca, is, as I put it, is it just works. Nice. Um, and the idea is you just, you know, put in a trade, will automatically adjust the priority fees under the hood, you know, automatically refresh the prices at the right interval so that the trade will go through. And I think that's something where people often again expose too much of the underlying technology to users. Like on Mm. other protocols, you have to manually adjust these priority fees. But like if you're just some random like Bob off the street, like, how does Bob know how much priority fees to set? Unless Bob is a dev, like, I don't know how many priority fees to set to get a trade through on another protocol, right? Just like, take care of that for me. That's like the, That's like, that's why this product exists, so I'd say yeah. when it comes to uh, how to win that trust from people, it's about making the product just work <laughs> with as minimal uh, technical knowledge necessary as possible and work reliably.
0: How do you think about the intersection of trust and accountability there. What, what is the- I think when most people think about trust in blockchain, they're talking about things like audit reports. They're talking about things like having a, a bug bounty program. But I think your definition of trust is a little bit a little bit different than that, and maybe more user-centric and less developer-centric.
1: It's very holistic. Trust comes from a lot of different places in crypto. Or rather, trust has a lot of different elements. It does include things like having audit reports from reputable audit firms. And it includes things also like even a doxed team so that people know uh, that mm. the the people developing this product are not going to just suddenly like one day walk away and, and leave the people who are using the protocol in the dust. But it also involves, I think, an, an interface that reassures people as to what's actually going on. And again, that's a, a big area of improvement that I'm really excited about that I'm just nerding out on this because I've been designing this product that's all about, like, winning users' trust for the past few weeks. But I think right now in crypto products, usually when your transaction is processing, it's this almost, like, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but this like, really anxiety-inducing moment. Like, oh, my God. Like, did this trade actually go through? Did I actually, like, send $5,000 to Austin or did I accidentally send it to Austin's address plus one extra character, you know? And it's just, like – people not really being in the loop as to what's going on, like the interface is not really visually showing what's happening. And even having to like go to a separate website, whether it's SoulScan or whatever, to, to see what's going on with your transaction, that's just mind-boggling to me. Like all of this needs to be be in the interface.
0: Yeah, you know, that, that, that confirmation time piece is such an interesting one because I think especially like, you know, the first network I really used after Bitcoin was Ethereum. And I remember... Buying some Ethereum on Coinbase and sending it to a wallet, having like five minutes of just like uncertain yeah. anxiety as that process was going through it, because these are not human readable addresses. You know, this, these, these are not, um, these are systems that for a trustless system require a lot of faith.
1: Mm-hmm. And these little design details will go a huge way to reassuring users as to what's going on. And to give you an example, in most wallets nowadays, when you actually have a transaction in progress, it's not really reflected in the wallet interface itself, right? So if I send you five thousand USDC, for example, my USDC balance may not actually show that the five thousand has been deducted until it's actually like processed on the other side. But that can be a difference of many, many seconds, right? If not longer. And so yeah. in between, I think we, we, I think we've all experienced like, oh, I don't think that went through. I'm going to send another five thousand dollars, and you're like, wait, shit. Now I have like two transactions on the blockchain for $5,000 is like not a small amount of money. And so even just having something like a pending or processing state that's actually two the second, if not on the order of milliseconds, can give people this reassurance that something's going on. And so I think even if the interface can't instantly send money like the way that, you know, say a Venmo can feel like it should at least tell you and give you a sense of how long it might take.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's it's funny you use Venmo as an example because, of course, Venmo clears on the ACH rails and is nowhere mm-hmm. near instant, even though it, it might provide an instant-feeling user experience. On the back end, it still has to run its way through the ACH network and still takes, you know, many hours to days to actually clear. Mm-hmm. That's a really good example of sort of how too much allegiance to the underlying technology paradigm can actually really hurt the experience of using something.
1: Yeah, and of course, like, Venmo is... The, the definition of centralized, yeah. right? So I think what they have to their advantage is, let's say something doesn't actually clear on the ACH rails on the back, and they can kind of like figure everything out on their centralized books, right? And just like make right. sure that you'll get what you you need at the end of the day. But a crypto by, by nature of being on a decentralized blockchain just can't do that, right? And so I think that's why we need to take a different approach to displaying to the user what's going on. And maybe we can't instantly credit your account, so to speak, because if it fails, it's like, you know. Right. That's that, but at least you can be very, very clear to users about what's actually happening and provide um, guidance in the case that something does fail. Uh, for example, something that the new Orca does that I'm really excited about is dynamically adjusting priority fees. And so, if the first time your transaction doesn't go through, the interface will be able to automatically adjust. So there's it's much more likely that it'll go through the second time, even if you're putting through the exact same transaction.
0: So before we wrap up today, two more things. Where can people stay up to date on you and Orca? And what resources would you recommend for folks who are maybe building a protocol and want to take their design more seriously?
1: So you can find Orca on Twitter at Orca underscore S-O, S-O for Solana. And you can find me also there at at twitter.com slash Ori the Orca, O-R-I-T-H-E-O-R-C-A. Right now, I'm actually just started, uh, I'd say, something new and exciting for me. It's a little bit nerve wracking, which is really starting to build more in the open, putting out more and more, you know, screenshots from my design process, like sharing more snippets about how I think about different aspects of the design process, with the hope that this is something that's helpful to people in understanding how how to tackle that very tricky intersection of design and technology and blockchains. So maybe that's one place to look. But beyond that, I would say, you know, the number one piece of advice I would give to a protocol that's really just getting started and wants to take design more seriously is to put someone for whom design is their top concern at the head of the table and you know i think no matter how good your designer is if they're just going to get overridden at every turn by the head of engineering saying like well i mean that's really cool like animations yada yada but like you know we just don't have time for that and that's like so that's just not going to make it into the product like then you just don't really have good design right and so, yeah, like find a designer. If, if you're lucky enough to find a designer who is very passionate about UX and is good at what they do, put them at the head of the table and give them equal voice to product and engineering. Otherwise, you, it's basically as good as not having a designer at all.
0: I have to say one of the most true statements I think anyone has ever said is you ship your org chart.
1: I love that. And speaks for itself. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, Ori, thank you so much for coming on Validated today.
1: Austin, thank you so much. So fun to chat.
0: Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Echter, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.